Hi, I'm Matthew McCabe. Welcome to Miracle Voices. Each episode, my co-host Judy Scutch Whitson and I will be delving into stories of forgiveness, healing, and transformation that have come about from integrating the principles of the book A Course in Miracles. If you want to learn more about A Course in Miracles, visit www.acim.org. If you'd like to visit the Miracle Voices site, please go to www.miraclevoices.org. Now here's your program. Hi, Judy. How you doing? I'm doing just so well today, Matt. Thanks for asking. Great, great. Well, we want to continue with this theme of transformation and healing through A Course in Miracles. And what a great topic today. It's how the course came to you. So without further ado, I just want to turn it over to you and hear the story. Oh, Matt, this is going to be a whopper. Hang on. Okay. (laughs) First of all, in the very beginning of A Course in Miracles, there are 50 principles of miracles. And the course describes in these 50 principles of miracles, the real meaning to A Course in Miracles of what that word is. So I'm going to pick one of them to introduce my topic today because it is so relevant. And this quote says, there is no order of difficulty in miracles. One is not harder or bigger than another. They are all the same. All expressions of love are maximum. So this sets up the idea right away is that, well, you don't have a great big miracle and you might have a little miracle. They're all the same. They're all equal because they all cause a shift in perception. It says all expressions of love are maximal. Therefore, we know that the miracle is an expression of love. So I'm about to tell you a whole bunch of little miracles that happened together to make my receiving A Course in Miracles come to be in 1975 in New York City. I was teaching then a class at New York University of consciousness research and another one on new dimensions in healing, subjects that were a little bit more like things that go bump in the night, not ordinary academic teaching, but people were interested in it. And so I was asked to give the courses and I loved it. I just loved that work. And my family would live nearby and everyone was healthy. My parents were still alive. My children were doing well. I had a marriage I loved and respected. Everything seemed to be good. Except I was gradually sinking into a dark space. I can't tell you why. If I were homeless and ill, if my family was in trouble, if my husband and I had lost our jobs... It's a good reason to sink into a dark space, but I had no reason, and that's what was interesting. I had no reason at all. One day, the feeling of despair got so bad that I went into my bathroom, which was built very solidly, and you couldn't hear, into the next room, and I started crying. And I heard myself sobbing and crying and then begging for help. I was shouting, actually. Won't someone up there please help me? Won't someone up there please help me? Well, many of us ask for help at times of need. 
And I don't know what everyone's answers are, but I do know that I got an answer. In a very, very short time after that, I had to give a talk at a conference about Kirlian photography, which was actually a Russian discovery, high-voltage photography, it was also called, which many people were beginning to think might be a diagnostic tool to see the human aura. Well, it wasn't, but there were a lot of people interested at the time, mostly in the medical community, because anything that was a new diagnostic tool, of course, would be very helpful. So I helped arrange this conference with people from all over the community, scientists actually from all over the world, and I was a keynote speaker to introduce it and to talk about the possibilities and describe who would be there and who would be speaking. And at some point, I heard myself saying something about healing. Uh, I say it came out of me automatically. I didn't think it. It just came out. But I remember part of me saying to myself, she, that was beautiful. I hope I remember it later. And it was just something to note. After this conference was over, I found out that I had an invitation to go to meet two people, Dr. William Thetford and Dr. Helen Schuckman, at the School of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University in New York City, where I lived. A friend invited me because he was at the same conference, and he said this Dr. Thetford person came up to him and asked him whether he knew me, and he said yes. He said, would you invite her to come to our um, university next week for lunch? We would like to have lunch with her. And my friend, whose name was Douglas Dean, Professor Douglas Dean from Newark College of Engineering, said, yes, he would come and he would bring me. And so on the appointed day, without knowing why we were going or who they were, and I must say the name Columbia University means something to me uh, as an institute of higher learning, and I'm always attracted to those. So I said I would go. And we drove up there, Douglas and I. It wasn't too far from my home, but far enough, and got there, and it was just beginning to drizzle and found a parking space immediately. And we're walking very, very quickly through the very crowded lunchtime streets when all of a sudden I saw on steps at the university someone who looked tremendously familiar. And I said to Douglas Dean, oh, there he is. He's the one we're supposed to meet, isn't he? Isn't that Dr. Thetford? And Douglas says, oh, yeah, what's he doing outside? We're supposed to meet him indoors at the cafeteria. And then he turned to me and he said, Judy, you've never seen him. But that didn't seem strange. I think I recognized this man the instant I saw him, but I couldn't say consciously I knew what it meant. But I did feel the feeling that I knew this person, and I obviously identified him. Well, I went with Douglas and, of course, Dr. Bill Thetford to their cafeteria, the teacher's lunchroom, and there sat down to lunch with Dr. Helen Shuckman. Um, how did they look? Well, she was a very, very short, small person with uh, 
short blonde cropped hair with streaks in it. So, you know, it was very beautifully done in the salon and with long polished red fingernails, dressed very professionally, a woman in her mid-60s and quite acerbic and clipped. Uh, He, tall and more ambling, more relaxed, punning all the time because he loved humor and very gracious was very different than she was in personality. And I realized that right away when I sat down to talk with these two people. We had a conversation, and it was about nothing in particular, except maybe the courses I was teaching or the weather or what the cafeteria served. And I was thinking at the time, it's like ships that pass in the night. We have nothing in common. I have no reason to be here. I don't even know why I came. When all of a sudden, with not thinking about it, a part of my brain that knew more than I said very quickly to Helen, so you're hearing an inner voice, are you? And she became very pale indeed and flustered. And Bill started to laugh. He treated almost everything with laughter, and it was a very good icebreaker. And she said, um, well, yes, and Bill said, let's finish our lunch, and then we'll go upstairs to our office, and we'll close the door or we'll pull down the shade so we have absolute privacy, and we will tell you the story we would like to share with you. So we finished our lunch, and we did indeed go up to their office, where they did indeed pull down the shade on the door, which had a window in it. And closed the door, and there was another young man in the room, and his name was Dr. Kenneth Wapnick. And he had joined Helen and Bill to work with them, as you will hear later, uh, about two years before I. And so we all sat around, and without any preamble, Helen and Bill together, each one at a time, of course, told me this story. And they told me how they had been in a place of deep despair. They had been working together for many years. Their whole department was in chaos. Academia, I think you may know that there's uh, an adage, publish or perish. (laughs) And that's not very comforting, but a lot of pressure. They were doing much more work than they probably could even cope with at the time. They were both editors of the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. I realized very quickly they were extremely eminent psychologists, and they had been around the block many times. They were in despair because they felt they weren't getting any place. The two of them had a very difficult relationship. It was one of those abrasive situations where, although they respected each other, they couldn't seem to be kind to each other. They couldn't seem to be patient. She mostly was participating in, oh, pulling him down and criticizing him and laughing at him. It just didn't feel good. And, of course, he suffered from it. And also... There were many people in their department who also found Helen abrasive. So at meetings that they had with the staff, there was a lot of controversy. And it got so that one day Bill actually cracked, as he told me. And he said to Helen, 
I don't know whether I can go on like this anymore, Helen. I think that I'm at the end of my rope. He said, we know all the different methods of psychology that there are in the world. We write about them with the experts on them. And not one of them has been helping us be kind to each other or be a good partnership. And she said, yeah, I know you're right. And he said, something has to be done. There must be a better way of living and working in this world. And then he said something strange for him. He hit his hand on the table. He said, I am determined to find it. Ordinarily, she would have mocked him. But instead, she thoughtfully took his hand and she said, Bill, dear, whatever this other way is, I will help you find it. So these two people told me this story. And when they were finished with that part of their story, they told me how for seven years they had been involved in taking down or scribing an answer to there must be a better way. It first started with Helen having a feeling in her mind which she called the voice with a capital V, which said, this is a course in miracles, please take notes. And she thought that was very odd indeed. And she called up Bill in his own apartment and she told him what had happened. And he said, well, do it. You take very fast shorthand. I've watched you through all the meetings. Take notes. And she said, what if it's crazy stuff? And he said, you come in in the morning very early before anyone else gets in and we'll lock the door and we'll pull down the shade and you read me from your notes and I'll type it up and we'll look at it. And if it's crazy, we'll tear it up and throw it away and that'll be the end. And that comforted her. So as she was telling me the story, indeed, she sat down with her steno notebook and she started to take notes. And the first thing she wrote down was the introduction to A Course in Miracles well, as they were telling me this story, the other part of my mind that was both listening and feeling wasn't the least bit surprised. I didn't think these people are really off the wall or why are they telling me this? Uh, it felt as if I had known them before. It felt as if in some way we were a family reuniting Dr. Kenneth Wapnick was sitting there, and every once in a while he would nod, but he wasn't actually participating. But he felt to me as part of it, too. And I couldn't explain that, so I felt unusually comfortable and relaxed and eager to hear more. I think at that moment, Helen and Bill were relieved that they had told me the story because for all the years they were taking down this manuscript, seven years for the text and then the workbook, until finally it was actually 10 years altogether. They always wondered if it was just for them. The document was given to them as if it was just to heal their relationship. And remember, wherever two or more are gathered and asked for help, and they certainly were two very determined people to want to change their lives, and they asked for help. 
that's a very important part of the story that I keep coming back to because it touches all of us so much. When they finished telling me this story, we were quiet for a while. And then they asked me if I had any questions. And I certainly did have questions. The first question I had was, why Why are you telling this to me? You say you keep it very quiet. You don't tell anyone. This is your big, deep, dark, guilty secret that you lock in a file container for the file drawer. And uh, why, why? Why are you telling it to me? And they told me this, that when it was finished, the course, Bill was the one who felt strongly it must be shared with the world. Helen didn't want anyone to read it, but Bill wanted it to be shared with the world. And they did have discussions about it, arguments. And the way they would solve these relationship arguments was they would stop and they would ask the Holy Spirit, the voice that dictated the Course, Jesus, as it is identified, what they should do, how they should proceed. And they were told someone is coming along to take it on its way. In other words, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Someone's coming. And they thought that was kind of interesting. And a couple of months went by and Bill was curious, well, where's the someone who's coming? (laughs) So Helen asked again and wrote down the answer. And the answer was very clear. She is not yet ready. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) At that point, I picked up my ears. (laughs) And then they said a little while later, Bill went to this conference where I was a speaker and he heard me talk. And inadvertently, I said, but of course, there are no accidents. I had quoted three lines from the course itself, which I had never seen, of course. And Bill heard them and he knew I was the one. And he went back with to Helen, who did not attend that conference, and he said, I found the woman who was supposed to take it on its way. And she asked, you know, okay, well, why her? And so they asked together, why her? And the answer they got that Helen wrote down, she is now ready for her spiritual education. At that point, if I weren't so embarrassed, I would have burst into tears because I knew how I had prayed and I had asked and how desperate I was. And I didn't know that this was what I was waiting for. But obviously, in some way, you could say in the way of a higher plan, I certainly was prepared for them that day and was in the same state of mind that they had been. And I was ready to receive this manuscript and so they took it out of their secret filing cabinet with a key and handed me seven enormous black thesis binders, because this was a manuscript, and put it on my lap, and they said, it's yours. Well, of course, that was quite astounding, but it wasn't so astounding, because it seemed to go together with the whole process. And I couldn't read it in front of them. That would have been rude. But I did open up the cover, and I read the introduction. This is the Course in Miracles. It is a required course. Only the time you take it is voluntary. Free will does not mean that you can choose the curriculum, but rather you can choose the time in which you take it. The purpose of the course is not to teach love. 
because that is beyond what can be taught, but rather to help remove the barriers to the acceptance of love's presence, which is your natural inheritance. Nothing unreal exists. Nothing real can be threatened. Hereon lies the peace of God. That's all that I read, those few sentences while they were watching me, and that's what I burst into tears. I knew that I had asked for help. I didn't plan on what kind of help I needed, but that I was being given something that would be the rest of my life, and that in some way it was part of God's plan for me. So with a deep sigh of relief, without even knowing what it was said, (laughs) I might have run in the other direction if I knew. (laughs) They found me two big shopping bags and put the thesis binders in these two big shopping bags and helped usher me out downstairs, out the building to my car so I could put all the books in the car and bring them home. There were no directives at that time. They didn't say, take care of them. They didn't say, bring them back tomorrow. It was, they were giving this to me because they knew that I was the next step as defined by the voice itself. What does next step mean? I didn't have the slightest idea. To me, the next step meant to, to, to study this, to find out what it said. And indeed, that was the next step. Because as I opened it when I got home, I realized that this was probably one of the most difficult documents I had ever read. And I was going to need a lot of help. And the next day, I called up Helen and Bill at their office at the university. And I told them that I was, to use the English expression, gobsmacked. I didn't know what to say. I was speechless, except... I knew that I was being given something through them. That was the rest of my life. It was my map home. I had felt so lost, so alone, so directionless, so rudderless. And this was the map that I needed to go to the home that I knew in some way I had left. And their answer to that was as soon as they finished work at one o'clock is to come to my house in New York City, my apartment. And we studied there for a few years every day except weekends. Matthew, this is a very long story I just told. And if I lost anyone there along the way, I'm sorry. But it just all came out really as a testimony to myself to what happens when we recognize there is that which is our creator, it is that to which we are connected, it is there that is our real and eternal home, and we're ready to receive the information. And I think the readiness is a very important part, but I don't think if I had received the course two years before that I really would have been interested in it at all. How this all happened is... um, my miracle, but it could be anyone else's and all the parts that you might recognize for yourselves. That episode, Judy, in the, the bathroom you mentioned, that was kind of, you think, your indication of readiness or willingness? Oh, yes. 
that prompted, okay. I think so, definitely. So I had no idea why I was feeling uh, depressed. I mean, I I actually consulted a therapist and I, I took meditation classes. I was trying everything. There was no earthly reason that I could figure out why I shouldn't be happy because I felt privileged. Some people come from abject pain. I could understand that better than I could understand myself. Years later, I met Mother Teresa through Helen and Bill since they were friends. And she asked me what my story was. And I didn't go into this story, but I told her very quickly there was a time in my life where I felt so deprived and so separated and so completely alone and lonely. And she says, oh, she waved her hand in the air. She says, oh, darling, I know what you're talking about. And I said, you do? She said, yes, you're suffering from a disease that's endemic in the world. And I said, endemic in the world? She says, yes, everybody has it. I said, is it a bad disease? She said, yes, it is a bad disease. I said, does it have a name? She said, it's called spiritual deprivation. And I thought of that for a second. I realized that's exactly the name of what I had, if I had known that was the name. And then I said, but is there an antidote to it? And she smiled, this beatific smile. And she said, oh, yes. She said, there certainly is an antidote to it. She said, it's called love. And thanks God, it's contagious. So, Judy, I'm curious, when when Bill Thetford heard you speaking somewhere, he heard you mention some lines that were in the, the course that you had not read yet, and really no one besides Helen and Bill had read, I think. What were those lines? Do you remember? Uh, the conference itself, as I mentioned, was on the topic of Curlian photography, yeah. which wasn't a machine that heals, but a process of, di- of diagnosis Yet many of the people at the conference uh, were talking about healing. And so in talking about healing and the possibility that this this tool may lead us to better understanding how healing works, I said something from the text which really surprised me. And it had to do with help and healing are the normal expressions of a mind that is working through the body, but not in it. And I wasn't even sure what that meant when I said it, but it seemed to fit into the talk. Help and healing are the normal expressions of a mind that is working through the body, but not in it. Mm. So in a sense, it was, you know, when something is set off by quotation marks or colons, in the middle of a sentence, you read something and it wants to emphasize that. Well, it felt like my talk, which included the topic of healing, was sort of interrupted by this strange phrase that made its way into it. And then, you know, I continued. Most people didn't know it. They didn't pay any attention to it. It was all like one part of the talk. But Bill Thefford recognized it instantly. He knew it came from the text, and he even knew it came from chapter eight. 
Wow. <laughs> that's incredible. Okay. So that that's really, you know, Helen's hearing a voice clearly in her head, it sounds like at this point, and, or in her mind, and Bill, you know, is hearing, you know, Helen's telling, telling him what's being said, but you don't have the benefit <laughs> of that, of that voice or that internal, but you kind of, you kind of picked up on like, Hey, this is a roads opening up in front of me here. And there's some blueprint in the background that I may not understand um, totally, but it feels like there's an opening happening here. Is that what the sense was? Well, something like that, Matthew, except we're talking about it intellectually. Right. When there was no intellectual feeling about it all, it was whomp right in my insides. I just looked at that introduction and what I heard in my own mind, felt in my own mind, you could say thought in my own mind, was here is my map home. So it was, I would say it was more a visceral. Later on, when I think about it, and I said it looked like there was a plan so perfectly arranged that with all of us and each of us in our lives, we have a connect the dots. If this didn't happen, then that couldn't have happened. If I didn't meet him, then I never would have met her. And if I didn't meet her, I couldn't have gotten this job. And if I got this job, I never would have met this person who promoted, you know, you just look at it all along and you say, wow, how did all of that happen? This felt like part of that. Like I was going through a real period of uh, despair, um, of lack, and there was no reason for me to, so that was even more extreme to know there was no reason for me to be feeling this way. And then to find out that there was a reason, but the reason wasn't in the physical world. It was that I was spiritually deprived. And that's what I was looking for. And when I said, will someone up there, please help me. I had no idea what the help could be what form it could take. But when I saw the course just about 11 days later and I read that introduction, I knew that was it. So I would say a visceral, intuitive, it falls into that part of our knowingness that really isn't the part of us that measures and registers and recognizes. And we all know that we have those, those parts of us within will say, I have a gut feeling about such and such. You don't say, my mind is telling me that. You just have a gut feeling. If you're really aware, you said, I'm intuitively recognizing that such and such could happen or will happen. I remember growing up as a very young child with my grandmother. I lived in the house with my grandmother and mother and father. And my grandmother was an amazing woman, and I loved her tremendously. And she would sit at Sunday luncheon in the days way back. I'm talking about 1933 or four, <laughs> when you don't make telephone calls long distance because they're much too expensive and there are party lines. And my grandmother would say casually to my mother, your sister's going to call me in about 15 minutes. So I ought to get the dessert on the table now. And no one thought anything of it 15 minutes later. My mother's sister would call her from Florida where she left. She didn't write her in advance. She didn't have a date with her. My grandmother just knew. So 
I was sensitized to that kind of knowing. I saw it work, and I never doubted it. And maybe that was part of why I was ready for this. I don't know. Wow. And so you've probably encountered a lot of people that uh, maybe some that'll be listening that are going through kind of difficult chapters and wondering what it all means and then struggling. Um, is there any guidance you would you would give them in terms of passages in the course or other helpful learnings you've had, you know, how to make the best foot forward? Uh, I'd give the same answer as when people ask me how they should start the course, because the course doesn't have directions in it. Do this first and then this and that. It's divided in three sections. As I mentioned, a text which lays forth the theological foundations of its theory or system, and then a lesson a day to apply what you have learned from the course, and then a teacher's manual. And when people say, where should I start? Well, it's logical. You pick up a book from the beginning and you start at the beginning. I mean, we all do that. I think most of us do that, unless we're skimming it for a test. However, the course isn't like that. I found when I started A Course in Miracles, I had the manuscript and I was reading it on pages of a manuscript. And I was reading it with Helen and Bill and Ken. And we went through the workbook together before I ever started the text. Why they decided that, I don't know. But it was a very good decision for me. Other people tell me that they're much more scholarly or academic than I am. And they want to first know what is it saying before they practice the lessons? Other people say, well, I picked up the teacher's manual first because it was the shortest. And it seemed to me to be the easiest to read. And I liked that so much that I went and continued. So there isn't any one way. We have to have the intention and the willingness, and then we're really given the way. Also, as I will be mentioning over and over again, the way it works in my life is to have a very close, companionable relationship of the highest kind of partnership with my inner voice, my higher teacher, the Holy Spirit. I just think of that as an actual essence that is there for me at any time I need it. It's not outside of me. I don't have to make an appointment. All I have to do is say, help, <laughs> and it's there. Um, other people may not see it that way. I think it's so individual. That's why the course is a self-study course. And that's why there is a teacher's manual also to help you to get us into the habit of recognizing that we are not alone. That is such an important concept in the course, and it is in every major tradition, by the way. We are not alone. So go to it, you know? <laughs> if there's a portion that you don't understand and you're reading the text, of course you can get online. And there are a lot of good people who have read the course over and over again and could even be helpful in interpreting that for you as it applies to you in your life. But basically I find there's nothing better than to ask the teacher within yeah, it was really helpful when you mentioned that 
it's something you didn't understand intellectually is more on a different level, different kind of stratum. You know, I'm, I'm going through lesson 44 today in the workbook. God is the light in which I see. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, f- I find myself like, oh, this is not uh, immediately intuitive to me. So I kind of take my logical brain and try to put it into a higher gear. And then, you know, I stop myself and say like, uh, that's not working. I got to release it entirely and just ask for guidance on how to have this make sense or interpret it. So that's really helpful for me. You know, Matthew, of course, we all started at one time. We were all at lesson one or page one of the text. But what I find helpful is not to overthink it, but especially going through the workbook and reread the instructions, the introduction to the workbook. There's only one instruction in the whole course, and it tells you, do not do more than one lesson a day. Do not do more than one lesson a day. But you can do a day, a lesson for 47 days if you want to, if you feel that you're getting so much out of it and you want to really grok it, as they say in sci-fi. Um, I find particularly in doing the lessons, a lot of it has to be done on faith. God is in everything I see. Well, does that mean that God is in this tree? I guess. Does it mean God is in this cloud? Perhaps. Does it mean God is in this computer? Perhaps. Does it mean God is in this clock on the wall? Perhaps. And then you get the idea. And the course tells you God is in everything you see because God is in your mind. You are thinking with that mind your higher self is. And that is why God is in everything you see. Judy, thanks so much for the summary of how the course came to you. Is there any final thoughts you want to share before we wrap things up today? Yes. Uh, Basically, what we're talking about today is miracles. And Some people are kind of skeptical about A Course of Miracles. What is that? Helen, by the way, did not want to call it A Course of Miracles and argued with the voice quite a bit and would cross out miracles and wasn't sure what she'd substitute. And finally, after about the 14th or 15th page, she had no choice. She realized it was adamant. It was to be called A Course of Miracles. I think it was along the way she realized why, because the miracle is redefined, re-explained, reinterpreted. And the miracle is that shift in perception from fear to love. In my life at that time, I was in a state of abject fear. That's what depression is. What happened when I asked for help? I had a miracle. I was given this course. Now, probably I told you my strongest miracle in my mind, and yet the course tells us there's no order of difficulty in miracles. A lot of little steps had to happen. Each of them were miraculous for me to receive this course and then to be appointed as publisher. I wouldn't want people to think that miracles are foreign to them and it only happens to some people. I would urge everyone to just ask, ask for help with something. And it doesn't matter again what you call it. Say, I cannot handle this myself. Please help me and see what happens. 
a miracle almost always comes. Sometimes you don't recognize it. A little while later, you'll see you already got your answer. Well, that's a great place to close, Judy. Thanks so much for sharing your story of how the course came to you. That was very helpful. And I had not heard it on that level of detail. So I'm sure that's going to be really helpful for the listeners. I really look forward to the next episode. So do I, Matt. It's fun. All right. Take care, Judy. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening today. Please subscribe to Miracle Voices by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast app. If you are enjoying these conversations, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. And lastly, please visit us at miraclevoices.org and join our newsletter so we can stay connected. Until the next podcast, I want to leave you with my favorite course quote, when you want only love, you will see nothing else. Nothing else.